For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, click Grainger.com, or just stop by. Granger For the ones who get it done. With your host, Andrew Donaldson, this is Heard Tell. Ah, welcome to Herd Tell. Thursday, March the 24th. I'm Andrew Donaldson. Thank you so much for joining us as the year of our Lord 2022 continues to roll along. Got a couple different things we want to cover on the show today. Uh, a predictably tragic and horrible story out of Afghanistan. We'll touch on that where girls are not being allowed to go to school. Kind of saw that coming, but here it is again. Uh, we're going to end the show with a little bit of a debate over Uncrustables. Yes, the peanut butter and jelly that you can fit in your hand and fit in your freezer and fit in your lunchbox. We'll end the show on a lighter note with that. Uh, also, domestic politics. Mark Meadows, former congressman, former chief of staff to President Trump's, got himself in a little bit of hot water because he was registered to vote in a mobile home on the side of a mountain that he never lived in while he lived in Alexandria, Virginia. I'm going to touch on that a little bit and how those that protest too much probably have a little bit of dirty laundry in their closet. Let's start out in Utah. Uh, Governor Spencer Cox has vetoed a transgender sports bill out there. Now, we're not going to rehash the entire transgender sports debate here, especially among younger people. We can do that in other places at other times. What's notable here is I want to draw attention to some of the things he says in the letter he's writing uh, about this bill. Quoting from his letter, Finally, there is one more important reason to veto this bill. I must admit I am not an expert on transgenderism. I struggle to understand so much of it, and the science is conflicting. When in doubt, however, I always try to err on the side of kindness, mercy, and compassion. I also try to get proximate, and I am learning so much from our transgender community. They are are great kids who face a normal struggle. Here's the numbers that are the most impacted by my decision. This is uh, Spencer Cox, the governor of Utah, Republican governor in what may very well be the reddest state in America. This is what he writes in his letter vetoing this legislation. 75,000 high school kids participate in high school sports programs in Utah. Four transgender kids play high school sports in Utah. One transgender student playing girls sports. 86% of trans youths report suicidality. 56% of trans youths have attempted suicide. Four kids, this is Spencer Cox writing, governor of Utah, Republican governor of Utah. Four kids and only one of them playing girls' sports. That's what all this is about. Four kids who aren't dominating or winning trophies or taking scholarships. Four kids who are just trying to find some friends and feel like they are part of something. Four kids trying to struggle to get through each day. Rarely has so much fear and anger been directed at so few. I don't understand what they are going through or why they feel the way they do, but I do want them to live. And all the research shows that even a little acceptance and connection can reduce suicidality significantly. For that reason, as much as any other, 
I have taken this action in the hope that we can continue to work together and find a better way. If a veto override occurs, by the way, it's almost certainly going to in the state of Utah, I hope we can work to find ways to show these four kids that we love and understand them, and they have a place in our state. I recognize the political realities of my decision. Politically, it would be much easier and better for me to simply sign the bill. I have always tried to do what I feel is right, regardless of the consequences. Sometimes I don't get it right, and I do not fault those who disagree with me. But even if you disagree with me, I hope this letter helps you understand the reasons for my decisions. That's Spencer Cox, governor of Utah, Republican governor of Utah, writing about the reasons he vetoed this transgender sports bill out in Utah. You need to do your own homework on these and not take talking heads uh, word for it and not just go smashing send on popular threads by popular pundits. Go read what the bill actually says. Go read what the governor wrote about it, why he vetoed it, and you can pay attention to what happens going forward. These are touchy, touchy issues. I appreciate the governor's words here, and I want to amplify them. While there are big examples like the University of Pennsylvania swimmer right now, who clearly and obviously has an unfair competitive advantage because of what they are doing. That's the exception, though. I point again to the governor's words here. This is a lot of legislation. This is a lot of regulation. This is a lot of outside money. This is a lot of political capital. This is a lot of bandwidth. This is a lot of vitriol. This is a lot of feelings and feels and emotions that in the case of Utah is getting directed at a grand total of four kids. Are we getting a little disproportion out of whack here? I understand people have strong opinions on this subject, but do we really all need to have an opinion on this subject that goes to the part of legislating? I want to leave this very hard topic with this one thought. However you feel about transgenderism and trans people, however you feel about the white hot and always getting hotter culture war that surrounds them, whatever your priors are, I want you to think of this one thing. If you can quote the suicide statistics of these people as being troubled, as needing help, and as being very, very much endangered as members of our society, if you can quote those stats, then you better, in all your speech that comes after that, show some empathy and sympathy as human beings towards them. Because if you can quote those stats, but then all they are are stats to you and fodder for your online rants and ravings, and you otherize these people, what's that tell us about you, that you know what the stats are, and you know what the dangers are, and you obviously disregard it? just to make a point online. It does not speak well of anyone if you can say these people are at high risk for suicide and that's why we need to pay attention to them. And then you turn around and put attention on them just for you to score social media points or culture war points. These are human beings. You need to treat them as such. And if you don't, then you're the bad guy. Be careful in our speech. Be careful in our advocacy. And be very, very careful that no matter how controversial the topic or how strongly you feel about it, that you ever take other human beings, especially children, especially underage children in this particular case, school-age children, and try to turn them into others. Because that's the path to some very, very dark stuff. And it's not because of what they're doing. It's because of what you're allowing to seep into your heart and mind. More Hurtel right after this. 
back to her tale. Uh, the tangled web we weave. Uh, Mark Meadows, who was a congressman in the western part of North Carolina for several years and was the last chief of staff for President Donald Trump, has himself a bit of a sticky situation. Uh, he's been being investigated for voter fraud. Yes, one of the main architects of the election was stolen and propagating all that mess has got a couple problems on his hands, not the least of which is his wife who was registered at a 14 by 16 foot mountaintop mobile home to vote for uh, the 2020 elections. Only problem is Mark Meadows and his wife assuredly did not live in a mobile home up on top of the mountain out in Western North Carolina during the 2020 elections. Uh, The form, this is from the Washington Post story. The form is the latest in a string of revelations concerning the former chief of staff who echoed President Donald Trump's false claims of election fraud in 2020 and his wife, the New Yorker, first report that Mark and Deborah Meadows submitted voter registration forms that listed at their home a mobile home with a rusted metal roof that sold for $105,000 in 2021, even though they never lived there. North Carolina officials announced last week that Mark Meadows is under investigation for potential voter fraud. The fact checkers reporting showed that 2020 Deborah Meadows signed three forms, a voter registration form, an absentee ballot request, and the one-stop voting application that warned of legal consequences if falsely completed and signed the statement by the North Carolina State Bureau of Investigation made no mention of Deborah Meadows, and officials declined to say whether the probe would also examine her actions in addition to the ongoing investigation into Mark Meadows. Um, The voter registration form asked residents this question, where you physically live, that's in quotes, and is signed under the penalty of perjury, that's also in quotes. All of us that are registered to vote sign the same form. According to New Yorker's reporter, Meadows and his wife have never lived there, and Meadows himself may have never set foot in the home, which is located four miles north of the border with Georgia in western North Carolina. Uh, Six months earlier, in March of 2020, Meadows sold for $370,000 a home in Sapphire, North Carolina, meaning the couple no longer had a place of residence in the state. Instead, they have mostly spent their time in a condominium in Old Town, Alexandria, and Virginia. Deborah Meadows used the old Sapphire registration to cast a ballot in the June primary runoff election for someone for whom she had done fundraising. Uh, We'll keep an eye on this. Of course, if you and I did it and got caught, we would all be probably going to jail. There was several instances of people doing multiple registrations or false registrations that have gone to prison, but he's a special case. Also, keep in mind, uh, Meadows is probably one of the prime targets to be a fall guy when if there's any uh, legal action involved in January 6th, because while he had direct access to President Trump, he does not have all the executive privileges, protections, something to keep an eye on. Those two things are not mutually exclusive. It is a very good bet that part of the investigation into the rest of Mark Meadows is probably bringing up this voter registration thing, kind of like going after Capone for his taxes. You know, the guy's dirty. They're going to get him on something. May very well be this. We'll keep an eye on it. More Hertel right after this. Back to Hertel. She's one of our favorites. Been a while since we've had her. Glad to have her now. She's the senior editor 
at Ordinary-Times.com, a fabulous writer. She is also a double Mountaineer graduate of WVU, including the law school, which is what we're going to be talking to her about. Uh, she is a practicing attorney. M. Carpenter, how are you, my friend? I'm well, thank you. How are you? Uh, we're doing fantastic. Okay, so we're going through the confirmation hearings for Ketanji Brown-Jackson. Uh, we have the normal silliness, which we'll get into in a minute. But first, let's start with something basic. You went to law school. I did not. Uh, so we have something that's going on. I think it's becoming a little bit like our HIPAA discussion and like Nuremberg codes and some other things that you rail on where people start using a legal term to sound like they know what they're talking about with legal things, but they have no idea what they're talking about. Uh, that guy that has that program that I don't like to talk about is once again bringing up and demanding that we see uh, Judge Jackson's LSAT scores. Would you please slowly with small words for the people from Logan and the folks out in overflow that couldn't get into the service, what the LSAT is, what it isn't, and what it does and does not apply to. Sure. The LSAT is the law school aptitude test. It's basically the SATs for law school that you take. And you know, after you finish college and you're trying to get into law school, you take the LSAT. It's an entrance exam. Um, it's nothing more than that. It has nothing to do with one's um, aptitude to be a judge or their knowledge of the law uh, or their how they apply the law. Um, there are no legal questions on the LSAT. There's no pre uh, they don't assume any any pre-knowledge of the law when you take the LSAT. It's more of um, reading comprehension. Uh, my favorite part of it is logic puzzles. You know, those that say there are five people sitting at a table. The person in red is sitting next to Jim. Jim is not wearing blue. The blue is sitting at the end, you know, things like that. You've got to figure out what order the people are sitting in. Logic puzzles. Love those. Um, that's what the LSAT is. So to be demanding the LSAT scores of a judicial, of a Supreme Court nominee is like asking for the SAT scores um, when you're, you know, somebody's applying for a job. They may want your college transcripts, they may want your grades, but no one asks what your SAT scores were unless you're trying to get into college. So it's, 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 really seems like a pathetic reach uh, to if that's the best they can do is, well, you won't tell us how what your LSAT scores were. That's pathetic. Wait a minute. Now, there's no legal questions on the LSAT. No, because this is a test you take before you go to law school. They don't expect you to know anything about the law before you go to law school. This is just sort of a, are you, you know, are you smart enough <laughs> to to be successful in law school that's the point of this can you comprehend can you can you logically parse the facts and and come up with a conclusion that makes sense it has nothing to there is no um legal questions on the lsat so why even bring that up i know the answer this is a rhetorical question because uh, you know, insipidus dollars want to lie to you and make it sound like there's something insidious here when there is not. I kind of compare it to like, you know, I was in the military. So you take an ASVAB, a lot of high school students do. You take the ASVAB, it's a placement and to tell people you're, you know, try to get some insight into your abilities. But that had absolutely nothing to do with my military career. It had nothing to do with the rank I achieved. It had nothing to do with how I performed my duties. Uh, the SAT, ACT, we've had a lot of discussions over that. I I don't even know what to say about it. It's so it's just so insipidously stupid to demand the LSAT. Is yeah. it just a legally? I I that's why I compared it to you ranting about HIPAA. 
it's I think it's just really people wanting to sound smart when they're not. And in this particular case, with this particular talking head who knows well and good that it's nonsense, trying to fool people into thinking you're saying something legalese when it really isn't. Exactly. And it's this is another instance. And it baffles me that people don't understand this of people who know better that think you don't know better. And they are counting on you not knowing better, which means basically his he thinks his audience is stupid. So <laughs> there's no other way to explain it for me. You have to think your audience is stupid to say something like that and expect it to, to uh, be influential to the people who are hearing it. Um, it. And why is he doing this? Because best I can tell, he can't find anything anything else that it, it's just such a reach that I can't fathom why else he would be going for that, uh, that angle of things. And I'll just add that um, if judge Jackson, I believe she, she went to Harvard, I'm going to say that if she did release her LSAT score, it would probably be pretty darn good. Yeah. She was a year behind. She was a year uh, apart from Ted Cruz of other, among other people, interestingly and not, Okay, so let's talk about these hearings because we've already bashed these to pieces. We talked about it during the Kavanaugh hearings. We talked about it during the Amy Comey Barrett hearings. Uh, The stuff that happens on the dais aimed at the nominee is mostly nonsense. We don't really learn a lot. But for you, because you do write about these things, you do in-depth studies of these things, we always tell people, read stuff for yourself. let's, Let's not skip over the nomenclature here. Where can people actually find this stuff? Because legal opinions, especially at the circuit court level, the appeals court level, this is all public information. This isn't hidden away in, you know, like the criminal court proceeding files where the criminal court, certain things are protected and only lawyers can get into it. This stuff's all public record just for the average person that wants to dig into this stuff that would actually like to read her legal writing because legal writing has a style to it, just like other all other writing. How does somebody find it? Because you find this stuff and then you write about it so we don't have to read about it. But let's just assume if folks want to find it on their own and they want to turn down the media noise on this and read Judge Jackson's opinion or any other judge's opinions for that matter, where do they go about finding this information? Because it's all free. It's all out there. And most of it's in PDF form where you can search it. Right. Uh, you can find the her court of appeals cases, of which there are only two, and we can get into that. But um, all of her... Uh, all of the opinions for the U.S. Court of Appeals for the various circuits can be found online at uscourts.gov. Specifically for D.C., it is um, cadc.uscourts.gov. Um, those are so. There's, those are where the her uh, opinions for her short, very short time on the appellate bench are located. Um, you can also look up the court for the District of Columbia and where you can find her 600 plus opinions issued for her time on the bench, which, you know, there's a lot more of those. So it's all available if you want to look through it. And um, I've been trying to. <laughs> um, here's the here's the thing with that. You know, um, I did a deep dive into Amy Cody Barrett when she was the nominee and she had several many, well, I think it was seven years, perhaps, on the appellate court. Um, so there was plenty of, of decisions that I could look through and read to try to get some idea of her judicial philosophy or her, her bent on how she might 
rule on certain issues and it's even organized by subject matter, it's pretty easy to find that information. Um, because Judge Jackson only has two opinions from uh, from the appellate court and, and they're not particularly interesting or influential um, one of them is a labor law opinion. I can't remember what the other is. So uh, I had to go then to her time in the district court. And uh, again, she has over 600 of them uh, during that time. And they're not organized by subject matter. They're just kind of, they're just organized by date. <laughs> so uh, I can find her name and see which opinion she wrote. But um, I have found in clicking through just kind of randomly trying to find um, something interesting, a lot of what I'm seeing are just, you know, two-page uh, orders or memorandums that, that are accompanying in order to dismiss a case. And and if you think about it, you know, she's in she's sitting in the district where people are suing the government routinely. And when that happens, you get a lot of crackpot cases. So, um, you know, we have a lot of short opinions dismissing cases brought by pro se litigants who think the government is spying on them personally or trying to sue um the Department of Justice because their ex-wife is trying to get child support. It's just craziness. So it's really hard to dig through all of those things and find interesting or, or cases that are helpful in, in trying to form an opinion. They're there. Um, I just have a full-time job, which makes it very hard to find all of them. So um, there are a few interesting things on there. I can say it's just that they're it's difficult to find. Uh, and so I think that rather than going out and trying to read these things for themselves and trying to dig through these, finding the needles in the haystack of the substance, they're going to pull out things like um, her LSAT scores. <laughs> I know Tucker Carlson, I hate to say it, sorry, I said the name, he should not be named, uh, isn't, isn't reading any of these opinions. I'm positive. And one other thing before we move along on it. Uh, because of that day job, you have argued in courts and the appeals court level. When when people are saying that and they're talking about qualifications, we we have different Supreme Court justices. You know, um, Elena Kagan came from the academic side. Amy Comey Barrett was academic and sat on the bench both. Uh, Gorsuch, of course, was well known for his appeals court level and and his legal, whether you agree with his philosophy or not. He very brilliant legal writer at the appeals court level. We have different kind of justices. Talk about the qualifications for all those all that district court work, because some folks were kind of saying, well, she's only been on the appeals court bench for a little less than since June of 2021. That's a lot of experience that is practicable when you're at the Supreme Court level. Right. Yeah, it is. And and as far as qualifications, I don't know that there's any one particular or one particular set of qualifications. Uh, I think a I think it's good uh, to have on the court just sort of a broad background among all of the judges. And yes, we see with, with Amy Coney Barrett, she has very little practice under her belt. She spent very, very few years of her career actually, um, you know, trying cases or, or being a trial lawyer or being a uh, practicing attorney, as you think of a practicing attorney. She does have a lot of, and that doesn't necessarily disqualify her in my opinion, and I didn't think it did you know, back when I was considering her, um, so that you can be qualified just by being a scholar of the law, by having, you know, studied a lot, being a, a being a law professor. And it doesn't, you know, just because you've been a professor rather than a, a practitioner, I don't think would necessarily disqualify you. I think that's fine. 
Um, but one thing, and we've, it's been talked about a lot, the one thing with Judge Jackson that sort of sets her apart is that she was a public defender. She was a criminal defense attorney for the indigent, which is a, um, I've said it before, I'm going to go through it again, but as you know, my opinion, that's what is probably the highest calling of an attorney. And uh, that is a very unique background to have. And I think it's something that's needed on the court. And I think that um, that would be a very helpful um, set of expertise that she brings to the bench. That now you do, you want to, you want judges that have enough broad base of knowledge that they can meaningfully consider and contemplate and, and rule on a variety of legal issues. Uh, so I think having all of various backgrounds is a, is a positive. Yeah, talking to M. Carpenter, senior editor at ordinary-times.com and an attorney in her own right. She writes a legal column most weeks, not every week, because of that day job we were talking about. Uh, when we come back, we're going to continue to delve into the background of Judge Jackson. We're also going to talk about what we can and can't glean from these hearings. And she has a couple of examples of Judge Jackson's uh, court case writings and opinion writings, one of them that's actually really good that might give you a little insight into her. More with our friend M. Carpenter right after this on her tell. Ah, welcome back to Herd Tell, continuing our conversation with M. Carpenter. She's senior editor at Ordinary Times. She's also an attorney in her own right. Okay, uh, we've talked about it, the background, a little bit. When you are digging through these, uh, judges and lawyers, but especially judges when they start uh, getting up into the, you know, the district level and the appeals court level, they develop a writing style because they understand that other attorneys are reading them. And then when they go to the appeals court level and the Supreme Court level, uh, they understand that people study their opinions. Scalia was kind of infamous for this, that he would write it very much so for because he knows people's going to read it. What have you gleaned from her writing style? I know you said a lot of it's just little two page things, but you found a couple of examples that really does allow her personality to come out a little bit on top of just her uh, judicial philosophy. Yeah, uh, one in particular that that tickled me, uh, and this is going way back to 2013 when she was fairly new. Uh, there was a case in which a pro se plaintiff, uh, Mr. Ratley, had sued the U.S. Postal Service for $341.99 for damage to a package. He claimed, uh, made a claim under the insurance that the Postal Service offered, and he filed it um, basically in a small claims court uh, for suits against um, the federal government, the small claims and conciliation branch of the District of Columbia Superior Court. and the, and the judge in that in the superior court had dismissed the, the plaintiff or dismissed the complaint because of bad service. You have to follow certain steps and rules and uh, when you're serving a complaint against somebody or serving a lawsuit on somebody. And he apparently didn't meet the didn't do what he was supposed to do. And, and his case was dismissed. Um, then he decided he was going to go a step further and he, and he tried to have his case reinstated and that should have been dismissed at that point. It was a pretty easy call for the the court. His case was kind of dead in the water at that point. It could have been gone at that point. But instead of letting that happen, the government lawyers (laughs) took the inexplicable step of, as she, as Judge Jackson puts it, decided to make a federal case out of it. (laughs) 
and they asked that this the small claims case be removed to to the federal court to the um, appeals court. <laughs> so, it just in, in for to put that into context, had the plaintiff filed his complaint in the, in the in the in the federal court, it would have cost him. $350, which is more than what he was asking for from, from the, the, the post office. So <laughs> as she writes here, despite having already secured near final dismissal of this matter, the Postal Service inexplicably snatched defeat from the jaws of victory by filing a notice of removal and thereby shifting the plaintiff's motion for reinstatement of the complaint and presumably the entire case into federal court. Uh, <laughs> and so, you know, she could have, Judge Jackson could have pretty quickly disposed of this case saying that, you know, removal is improper and, and or other for other reasons. But instead, she took about seven pages basically to explain all of the ways in which the federal government was acting stupidly in this case. Um, you know, she says uh, there was uh, a lot of um opportunities for the government to have backed off and uh, you know now they're just they're going to litigate this case in federal court at a cost far greater than the claimed benefit uh, the postal service vigorously maintains that the agency properly removed the plaintiff's reinstatement for two reasons uh, because one the usps is a federal agency and was improperly sued in state court and second because the plaintiff's motion for reinstatement constitutes a removable civil action so it wasn't so much that they couldn't remove it, but they didn't have to, and and they're they're wasting a lot of time and money here. And and uh, she says, uh, without providing any clues to a broader, more fundamental question, why did the agency determine that removal to federal court, even if valid, was appropriately invoked under the circumstances presented in this case? But she says, nevertheless, the court is persuaded. <laughs> so she says, okay, we're we're going to take jurisdiction of this case and. Uh, despite the fact that leaving well enough alone would certainly have been the easier, less costly, and more efficient matter for the option of this dispute. <laughs> they, of course, she's saying, had they just left this case in the, the lower court, it would have been dismissed and it probably it would have been over with. But instead, they're going to spend all this time and money removing it. And she, if you read the opinion, and it's only seven pages, it's, it's really actually slyly funny. She's not overtly critical or being rude to, <laughs> to the defendants here, the, to the post office here, but she if I was the attorney in this case reading this, I would have felt really dumb when I was done reading it. So um, it's it's a good read. It's a good example of of her writing. Um, if and I think it's one worth looking up. It is uh, again. It is Ratley, R A T L E Y versus United States Postal Service from a 2013 case. Um, unfortunately, I did follow up to see what happened with this case, and Mr. Ratley, I think found himself a little overwhelmed by the uh, process and procedure of the U.S. Uh, district court. Um, I kept saying appellate court, but I meant district court. And so he apparently did not follow up and didn't file any more any more pleadings. And his case was ultimately dismissed in the U.S. Postal Service one, unfortunately. Uh, but it, it's 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 this good read. It's a good funny uh, case. It was the only one so far that I found that was really interesting and uh, and easy to read and and uh, a fun opinion. And in my opinion, yeah, talking to M. Carpenter, uh, senior editor, of Ordinary Times, and an attorney who explains legal things so well that even I can understand them. That's fun. Uh, a little less fun is some of the stuff going on in the hearings. 
I don't want to get into the the technicalities of the case law because they keep bringing it up and up. But when when you hear the the senators bringing up uh, the the child porn cases and things like this, um, you've done a review on her now. You're looking through her stuff. How hard do they have to dig to find a case like that? And how applicable is it really to her broader legal theories? Because I know it's it's scary words because you start talking uh, child molesters and child porn and all mm-hmm. these really scary, ugly, wicked things that do need to be severely punished. Nobody's saying they shouldn't be. But also there's a little bit of a thing here is, you know, you're also dealing with victims. You're often dealing with victims who are victims themselves. There seems to be a little bit of a, a problem here where they want to talk about judicial discretion as a one way street when it's not. It's a entirely complicated thing. Yeah. For the first part of your question about how they had to dig to find this, I feel like somebody put a bug in their ear. Somebody maybe who is involved and was unhappy with that, with the outcome of that case may have alerted them to its existence because otherwise, yeah, finding that would have been very difficult. Um, especially in a criminal case, you know, you can find all of these documents online in PACER, that's the, the court documents, electronic filing system that you can pay and get access to. And, um, you know, every time there's a hearing in a criminal case, and there are a lot of hearings in criminal cases, an order is generated just to say, you know, we were in court this day and this is what happened. So any particular, any criminal case is probably has dozens of orders, uh, can have up, to, you know, maybe dozens of orders listed online. And uh, you would have to find, you'd be digging through all of these orders, trying to find a sentencing order or um, a sentencing memorandum. You would really be drilling down through levels of documents and to try to find something that specific. It's not something that you're just going to run across by browsing. So I think probably someone put a bug in, in, in someone's ear to look at that particular case because it, it does sound icky on the surface. It is hard to, it is, it is a, an easy one for her opponents to latch onto and, and make a big deal about because it is such a sensitive, um, a sensitive topic and nobody wants to be on the side of leniently punishing people with child sexual abuse material on their computers. Uh, think of in this case, it was an 18-year-old high school student, which may or may not have played into the judge's um, decision there. Um, and I, again, yeah, we don't want it to get into it too deeply, but, you know, judges do have discretion and quite often they use it in the opposite direction. And they, you know, especially in federal court, the, some sentences can be really severe and um, it's not as common for a downward departure from guidelines to get a, a, a lesser sentence in my experience. So um, that's an interesting case as well for them to to highlight. Uh, it's unfortunate that it's this particular topic. I wonder um, if they looked as hard for perhaps, you know, a white collar criminal whose sentence may have diverged below the sentencing guidelines or below a prosecutor's recommendation. And if they would have made, uh, made as much of a, a point of pointing that out, probably not. I got a little frustrated listening to it because um, Senator Josh Hawley, who I hold in high contempt because I just I don't care for him at all. But he kept arguing with a judge of like, well, Congress's guidelines were this, that and the other. And he kept coming back to he's like, well, there's the federal guidelines and then there's the sentencing guidelines and then there's the Congre- Congress wants this and Congress wants this. And I'm sitting there and I just want to throw something on the TV like, yes, and Congress shouldn't have had a role in any of this because it was once again 
a symptom of legislation of do something of mandatory sentencing, which almost never works out well once it actually goes to the practical level of the criminal court system. But that's another debate for another day, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, I, I agree. Talking to M. Carpenter. Before we got to let you go, though, uh, let, let's go back to uh, Judge Jackson for just a second. Uh, she's going to be confirmed. This is this is all dog and pony shows. She's going to get confirmed. I suspect she'll probably get a couple of Republican votes somewhere in here as well. Uh, this is not uh, this is not a, a flipping of the court. This is a progressive with another progressive who's well in the main line of the progressives. Most legal scholars we've been reading says she's going to be somewhere between uh, Kagan and Sotomayor. She's well within the mainstream of of that judicial philosophy. What what do you see us going forward with Supreme Court nominees? Because uh, Amy Comey Barrett wasn't quite as bad as Kavanaugh. This one's not boring, but it's it's more. What does it say to us about our legal system and the way we preserve? Pre- <laughs> what does it say about us and our legal system and how we perceive the Supreme Court that people are almost disappointed that we're having a relatively boring uh, nomination and confirmation hearing. I know we're getting some noise on things like the the child sex guidelines and things like that, but this is pretty much a boring one that's not in any doubt. Does it speak really ill to us? Because I think it does, that folks are almost disappointed that this isn't turning into a big free-for-all. I think so. I think we've gotten used to the drama and, and the spectacle of it all. Uh, and I think that folks like Holly are really doing their best to to you know, make it more like the, the, the gladiator events, <laughs> you know, something, watch this person, watch this person fight the lion. And, and you know, I think Holly perceives himself to be the lion in this case. So I think, yeah, they're, they're trying really hard to make it interesting. And uh, I know you make a lot of analogies to professional wrestling and it's, he's trying really hard to, to make a uh, main event out of this. And, Unfortunately, yeah, I think there is an appetite for the drama. And, you know, we, a lot of folks say they don't want it. They want civility and, they, and it, you know, um, this type of thing to be boring, to go back to the days of, you know, 98 to 2 confirmations and, and things like that. Um, it's not where we are right now, unfortunately. And as long as people continue to uh, eat up this kind of contentiousness, it's probably going to continue. It's great for the fundraising for people who, uh, are uh, like Holly are making big spectacles of themselves and making it about them as, as a lot of the, um, you know, people on the other side and for Kavanaugh and, and Amy Coney Barrett, they were all giving stump speeches and that's, that's what this is. Yeah. Uh, to your point, Ruth Bader Ginsburg uh, nominated August of 93, 96 to three vote. Stephen Breyer, who <laughs> obviously is apropos to the moment, 87 to 9 in 1994. It wasn't that long ago. This uh, like even um, the Obama era, which was highly polarized, highly political era. Kagan and Sotomayor were both 63-37 and 68-31 respectively, basically the same spread. Um, and then you get into some of the more real contentious one. I remember when they did Alito, which a lot of people had a problem with Alito. Even he, with all that, he was 58-42. It wasn't really close. And a lot of people had... Um, how do I say this kindly? Because I know he's not your favorite either. Had some legitimate concerns if he was up to the, we were talking about the writing before. A lot of people don't care for Justice Alito's writing. They don't think he's particularly, um, I don't want to say creative, but he, he, there's been questions about how well he is for the court. 
But then you get into the the Trump years and Gorsuch and Kavanaugh and Amy Comey Barrett were all basically party line votes with the exception of Gorsuch. You got about a 10 point spread. I think we're just pretty much in party line votes and it's going to be like major legislation where you're going to get it as long as they pass, then you'll get a few deflectors for cover. And it's just turned into one more legislative thing, hadn't it? Yeah, I agree with you there. I wonder sometimes it's hard for me to imagine, but, you know, what would our would Ruth Bader Ginsburg vote have looked like today with her uh, her history on um, you know, civil rights cases and, and, and such? I, I think she would not she would not be in a um, 96 to three or whatever it was. So it is interesting and unfortunate, I think, that it's turned out this way. I mean, I've, I've always said that um, in 99 percent of the cases that come before the Supreme Court, you know, they're not as politically interested in the outcome as we like to think they are. Um, there are some big kind of um, cultural issue type cases that uh, people pay the most attention to. But a lot of the things that go on, you know, in the court, you get a lot of 908172 opinions on things that you would have expected to be more partisan. So um, it, I think that the these confirmation hearings are more contentious than the actual court itself. Yeah. Uh, M. Carpenter, I rely on you. A lot of other people do. You're a great writer. Let people know where they can find you and follow your writing and your work. Sure. I'm at Ordinary Dash Times uh, along with you and all of our other friends there. I try to do my Wednesday. I didn't get it one done this week, but I had a few last couple of weeks, so I, I thought I earned a week off. Um, also on Twitter at WVSquires. Um, follow me. It's unfair that you have so many more followers than I do, so I'm it's time for people to jump on the M train. <laughs> yeah. Well, I showed up to work this week. So there, um, availability is half of greatness. <laughs> M Carpenter, I'm giving you a hard time. You do great work and yeah, you, you earn a little bit of downtime from time to time. Thank you so much for your insight today. All right. Thank you. Yes, ma'am. Uh, file this one under tragically predictable uh, the BBC the Taliban of course we're talking about Afghanistan and the complete mess we left that country in not that it wasn't a complete mess to start with but after 20 years probably should have had more to show for it the Taliban has reversed a decision to allow Afghan girls to return to high school saying a ruling is still to be made on the uniforms they must wear schools were set to open nationwide after months of restrictions since the Taliban seized power in August but education ministry abruptly announced girls' secondary school would stay shut, causing confusion. Some girls were in tears as parents and students reacted with anger and disappointment at the last-minute move. Many had earlier talked of how happy and excited they were to be back in the classroom. The decision comes a week after the education ministry announced schools for all students, including girls, would be open around the country on Wednesday. Quote, we inform all girls' high school and those girls have female students ab above class six that they are off until the next order. The notice said the notice added schools would reopen after a decision over the uniform of female students was made in accordance with Sharia law and Afghan tradition. The sudden reversal has sparked deep anger from parents, a man who did not want to be identified 
because he'll freaking kill you, uh, would be identified by the BBC. His daughter had been in shock and tears. If anything happens to my daughter, I will not forgive the Taliban, he said. Under Taliban rule in the 90s, girls were banned from getting a formal education. And since the Taliban took power again in late August, only girls' primary schools, along with all boys' schools, have remained open in most of the country. Girls' secondary schools were finally meant to open today. Privately, Taliban members admit female education remains remains controversial issue among their most hardlined elements. Good God, the backwardness of this uh, ideology. This chaotic and last-minute policy reversal makes clear the divisions within the group and underlines how out of touch with the aspirations of modern Afghan society parts of the leadership are. Activist Mahmoud Siraj, I'm sure I'm mispronouncing that, I apologize, founder of the Afghan Women's Network, was bemused by the U-turn. The excuse they give is you don't have the proper hijab on. There was no ruling. There was just a decision this morning that the hijab was not proper for whatever reason. She said school uniforms in Afghanistan are pretty covered up always. Uh, Secondary schools in Afghanistan have always segregated by gender. One of the demands of the international community was for the Taliban to grant women and girls the right to educate before being unlabeled, able to access foreign aid. Folks, we knew this was going to happen. Uh, We have years and years and years of book on what the Taliban is and believes. They put on a good show on the front, but at some point, those more radical elements are going to win out. And folks like school-age girls and women in particular are going to suffer greatly under this regime. Just more evidence that they're going to say one thing to get the money, to get the recognition they crave. In practicality, though, not much has changed. Same old Taliban. We're not going to forget about Afghanistan. We're going to keep touching in with it. We're actually working on getting a couple people that have uh, good and intimate knowledge of the situation in Afghanistan since the disastrous U.S. pullout. We're going to continue to cover this story, and we'll do more Herd Tell right after this. Welcome back to Hurtel. You know, we always try to end on a little bit of a lighthearted note. Here's a lighthearted note. You know how we love our food. We do hashtag Twitter Supper Club on the Twitter. If you're online, you can always check that out. Here's one for you. Uh, WPST.com are Uncrustables just for kids. Uh, do you know what I'm talking about? Uncrustables is from the piece. Are the round peanut butter and jelly sandwiches that come frozen in a box. The sandwich is pressed shut with the PB&J stuffed in the middle with every bite it oozes out. And yum. Traditionally, kids don't like crusts, and parents spent so much time cutting the crusts off for their kids that schmuckers made this amazing product, so there would be no crust. I could argue some adults don't like crust either. Yes, I know they come frozen, so they can be plopped into a kid's lunchbox, and it will thaw and stay cold for lunch, but I do the same thing. Pop it into my Yeti lunch bag, and by the time the show ends at 10 a.m., I'm ready to eat lunch. Yes, lunch is early for us because we're up so early. Would you ever take one to work, or would you be afraid to be made fun of? I don't care to be made fun of. I still love them. Come to think of it, I like other kids' food, and I'm not embarrassed to tell you. I have some Elio's pizza in my fridge right now. Bagel bites are the best. I just had mac and cheese bites the other day, Uh, and it goes on. Uh, (laughs) This is a fun one from Chris Rollins uh, at 945pstwpst.com. By the way, if you want to be a little more uh, hot cuisine, 
that's a fancy French word for those of you from Logan. Doesn't mean physically hot. You can actually buy a press and just get some bread and you can make Uncrustables. And with a little cheap press device for 20, 30 bucks, make Uncrustables at home. As with all things, it's Uncrustables are what you make of it. You can make some pretty tasty eats. By the way, peanut butter and jelly sandwiches, there is research. Number one food item for the NBA, top level athletes. They love those things right after games. So little PB&J love for to end the program. That'll do it for her tell today. Wherever you are and whatever you're eating, we hope you're well. We hope you are well fed. And we'll talk to you tomorrow for more Herd Tell. All the music on Herd Tell is provided under a creative content license from monstercat.com. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Without the ones like you who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you. With professional-grade industrial supplies, count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.